Let's pray. God, we thank you for our church, and we pray, Lord, that as we open your word to 1 Samuel chapter 29, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a continuation from chapter 27 through chapter 28, verse 2, where David left Israel, went to Philistia to be hired out by Achish, the king of Gath. And so David was simply tired of being hunted by Saul, and he tried to keep his thousands of people with him safe, right? He had 600 men with him and their family, so it's probably thousands of people with him. And, and so he was hoping to take all these people away from Saul, keep them safe, which he did, but in the process he got himself into some trouble. So he got himself in this pickle here. And at the time, this was worth it to David to not have to run from Saul anymore and, and to live in a relative security and relative provisions But by going to Achish, he got himself into this different set of problems. And because David earned Achish's trust through this deception and this plan that he came up with that was seemingly coming together really well, actually too well, so well that he was invited by the king of Gath to fight against Israel, his own people. So David was confronted with this act of treason, this act of betrayal, which meant he would discredit himself from ever being considered king. And he was also confronted with the truth being discovered, which would cause Achish to go after David's head, along with Saul wanting David's head. So needless to say, David has some serious problems. He's stuck between a rock and a hard place. So now we find ourselves at Aphek in chapter 29, where the Philistines were gathering their military forces. And this is where we're in the middle of David's dilemma here. And you recall a couple of weeks ago how the author jumped from chapter 28, verse 2, right into the story about Saul without telling us what happened to David. And so here is where we're told what happened to David after chapter 28, verse 2. And after going through chapter 28, you would naturally wonder what's going to happen to Saul. But then in chapter 29, he goes back to this. The author pulls this switch again, and he talks about David instead. What's up with this author switching back and forth between stories here? Not not staying in one place and finishing one story up, but he's just jumping back and forth like this. Kind of confusing, but here we are, chapter 29. We're back to David, who's caught in a pickle. So if you recall from the message of a couple weeks ago, Shunem is the equivalent of San Ramon. Aphek is Oakland. And the troops were gathering at Aphek, and they were going to make their way to Shunem. So here you'll, you'll notice that if you read this entire chapter in totality, you'll, you'll notice that half of this chapter is Achish speaking. And he speaks three times, and he, he keeps commenting on, on David's trustworthiness, on David's fidelity. And Achish is, is totally duped here. He's, he's totally fooled, and he's buying into David's act, right? Hook, line, and sinker. He's buying into his act. And so let's just go into the text here. Verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel? who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. 
He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? And as we wonder how David is going to get out of this dilemma, it's, it's the officers of the Philistine military. The lords of the Philistines that bail him out. See, see they're, they're, not, they're not cool with David here. The, the last thing they want is the possibility of David reconciling with Saul by taking out a bunch of the Philistines in the middle of battle. So they're telling Achish, get him out of here. This is a liability to us. But Achish isn't convinced about this. He, he trusted David quite a bit. And he's thinking that David has quite an army. Right? He's, he's Israel's best commander. He has this army of 600 mercenaries to join us. This is, this is a good thing. But the Philistine lords, they're not dummies. Right? They, they were really careful in their approach. And they didn't want to risk this potential kind of switch. That, that the risk didn't outweigh the potential benefits for them. So they recognize that if David were to ever get back into the graces of Saul, he would have to pull something like this off where, where he would fight against the Philistines in battle and, and then they would be able to help Israel win. So, so that would be a way for him to gain favor with Saul. And it was just too risky for the Philistine lords. It's not worth it to them. Not something they were willing to chance. Not only were they prudent here, but, but history didn't benefit Achish's case either to have David join them in battle because they, they point to something in history. They say that the Philistine lords reminded Achish that there was this top 20 song written about David killing his 10,000s. Remember that? All the, all the teenagers know it. They're singing it. And those 10,000s were us. They killed us. Remember that. So the Philistine lords, they didn't want David with them. right? They killed their people, tens of thousands of them. Verse 6, Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So Achish spoke with David, told him he found him to be honest, and gave him his reasoning. And, and it wasn't Achish who had something against him, but the Lord's. And, and he was outvoted, so he's trying to be you know, politically correct and diplomatic here and stuff. Verse 8, And David said to Achish, What have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? So David played along. He acted hurt. Angered by this, he had, you know he had to keep his front right. He, he had it worked out so well for him, but but since it allowed to gather his guys and head home, but he he had to still kind of put on that front. Verse nine, and Achish answered David and said, "I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light." So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. David is delivered. And this deliverance is really interesting and it's really surprising, isn't it? How was he delivered? Through the Philistines. 
again. Right? That, that happened back at the end of chapter 23 when the Philistines attacked Israel. Saul had to call off his pursuit of David to fight them and, and the Philistines delivered David back then. And here we see the Philistines come through for David again. And this isn't just luck. This is divine, merciful deliverance. And Achish, he was, he was outvoted by the lords. And so, so we see the means to how God mercifully delivered David. And God is just so creative. You, you think that how in the world is he going to get out of this? And he pulls this off. And when we wonder how we're going to get out of our messes, God isn't up there panicking, wondering, what am I going to do? They got me on this one. Oh, help. And so while David is, is, is the one who got himself into this mess through his own decisions, through his own so-called wisdom, or shall we say foolishness, or lack of faith because he didn't fully place his security in God, God delivered him. And even though he got himself into this jam, God's mercy has no bounds. And that's the good news of this text for us. That God's mercies Pursue His children even in our foolishness, even in our folly, even in our faithlessness. Now let's take a closer look at the mercy of God here in this chapter. Do you notice how silent it is? How it's hidden and it's indirect in in how God was using His his mercy with David here? There was no vision for David on the night before battle. There was no record of God appearing to David in a dream to tell him what was going to happen. Things just happened. They just happened naturally. And hardly any attention to it. It just happened. It's kind of hidden. No overt overt comments. God just quietly orchestrates this. And there is no direct reference to God here. Did you notice that? There's really no mention of God or what he's doing here in chapter 29. Actually, there is. Who's the person who mentions God in this chapter? King Achish of Gath. Not a man of faith, a pagan guy. The Philistine king who makes this kind of courtesy allusion to David's God in verses 6 and 9. And the reference to God are from a Philistine. It's not from a man of faith. Things are pretty bad for you if if the Philistine is talking to you about your God, right? So what's going on here? How do we know this is a taste of God's mercy if it doesn't talk about God's mercy? That's what we sometimes deal with when we look at Old Testament stories and narratives. The Old Testament narratives and stories don't always come out and tell us precisely what God is doing. Right? The Scripture's intent is to have us think. To ask questions. To figure out what's going on. What God is doing. And maybe that's what the Holy Spirit is doing deliberately. The Holy Spirit doesn't make everything obvious in some of the narrative passages, which is actually good. Because sometimes pointing out the obvious isn't always that helpful. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. You look at the epistles. They are much more obvious than the Old Testament narratives, aren't they? And like in chapter 29, this narrative here, it would be more obvious if the Scriptures just read, the Lord bailed David out of his dilemma with King Achish and the Philistines. Period. But it doesn't. It just describes to us what happened. And so it goes to show 
this silent mercy of God that it's quiet and it, and it has to be detected. It has to be discovered rather than having to be told about it. And maybe we should do this with our own lives. For those of us who are disciples of Jesus, as we look back into our own experiences in our life, we can be asking ourselves some of these questions like, when has the Lord shown His quiet, silent mercy towards me? When has He shown His quiet and silent care for me? And perhaps as we reflect back on some of the junk that God has pulled us out of, looking back at all the messy stuff that we were in, you ask yourself if you've experienced God's quiet mercy, and I would think that you have because you're here. And God doesn't always use a bullhorn to tell you that He's being merciful to you. right? God tends to want us to clue in on it on our own, to, to discover His wonderful mercy towards us. And some of us may be wondering why God works in such a subdued way. Just tell me you're merciful to me. I don't know why He does the way He does. I'm not God. But maybe, maybe it's because it's more challenging. Maybe it's because it's more interesting. And maybe because it's more beautiful. Right? It's, it's like when a guy in college is dating a gal in college. Right? Let's just say gal from Cal. And let's just use them as examples because most of them are gone for the summer, so let's go ahead and use them. So, so we have this guy who is fly and the gal from Cal. And, and they've gone out on several dates. And, and fly guy is starting to get more and more interested in gal from Cal. And interested enough that fly guy wants to hold her hand. But... <laughs> But you being fly guy, you're not so sure whether you should or not yet because you just don't know if you being fly guy, you're going to get swatted. <laughs> so, so you don't know if you're going you're gonna to get rejected here. Maybe your feelings towards her aren't exactly as if the, her feelings towards you. And sure, she keeps going out with you, but you don't know if that's just because she's nice and she can't say no to you. And, and you just don't know exactly where you stand. Just one of those places of misery, really. But isn't that misery just so exquisite? It's, it is. It is. It is. So, so you wonder about it. You talk to your friends about it. All that kind of stuff. And, and there are a couple approaches you can take. Right? There's this exciting way to approach it. And there's this dorky way to approach it. And there are probably more ways. But for the sake of time, let's just go with these two ways. This exhilarating, exciting way. Dorky way. So, dorky one is to define the relationship. <laughs> DTR, right? Which, which I interpret as dork dorkifying the relationship. So where you tell the girl you, you, you want to uh, set up a time so, so, that, so, so that we can talk about uh, us and, and um, when we might hold hands. Where you analyze the relationship to dorkiness and you have this clear discussion as to when you hold hands and why and all how and all this stuff. Uh, clinch this or this. like oh, Figuring out all this stuff. My opinion, personally, dorky. Just my opinion. Not gospel truth. My opinion. And I'm not, and I'm not saying that all DTRs are dorky. This one, dorky. Okay? So... But sometimes I do think that DTRs are necessary. I'm not, I'm not putting a blanket thing out there saying they're not. Most of the time not though. So, but in this case, I think it's more exhilarating and exciting to go along in the exquisite misery. Right? When, when one evening you guys are, 
are, talk, are just kind of talking, taking a stroll, grabbing a bite to eat. And, and then you, after the bite to eat, you're taking this walk. Or, or you take a walk uh, for a study break because you were studying in the library, whatever. And, and then you're walking, and, and the back of your hands just kind of brush like, like that. And, then, and you're like, whoa. Woohoo. And you get shivers and stuff. And, 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 and then the guy's like, accident, right? Uh-huh, accident. Uh-huh. And so, and guys, take notes. I'm helping you right here, right? So, where, where, where there may be some fumbling around, you're like, and and uh, and you're just kind of wondering what's going on, and this rush of heat goes up into your face, and, you, and your heart beats faster, and you start getting these little goosebumps. It's like hot and cold at the same time. But to me, it's exciting. It's not boring and dorky. It's again my opinion. So and 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 you, it just happens. It just happened. And and I find that more beautiful. I find that more interesting, challenging, but beautiful and interesting also, and in that quiet and natural way, right? Not, not as calculated as holding this overt conversation. So when we hold hands, our fingers will be laced or not. And, and so this, 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 conver- this calculated conversation, it, it kind of ruins it for me, right? And maybe not for you guys, but for me, it does. And I'm not judging you guys, because actually I was the boring guy. And the reason why was because of my position as a pastor. I felt that I did not have the liberty to all this stuff. I felt like, Katie, here it is. I'm being above reproach. This is me. I'm sorry for being boring and dorky. But I, but I think most people, you're not in that place in, in terms of like, don't deceive women and stuff like that, but I, I think you can have some leeway there, some grace there into how your romance works out. Anyway, guys, we can chat. But that, that's kind of what I find fascinating about the ways God sometimes works with us. How, how God works with us in these more subdued, quiet, silent ways, and oftentimes it can mean so much more when we kind of think and we ponder, and we discover the traces of God's mercy towards us rather than Him declaring His mercy on us. Hey, did you notice that? I'm being merciful to you. See it? You see it? Right? It's, 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 God's mercy is not like that. It's silent. It's silent to us where we, where we discover it upon reflection of God and how, how beautiful His mercies are when we, when we kind of figure it out, when we kind of recognize that He's being merciful to us. Kind of like what happened to Jacob in Genesis chapter 24, verse 16, where he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And sometimes we find that God has been in this place where, where He has done something, and we just don't know it. And it happens naturally, and it's not a big deal. No bells and whistles, no attention getters. Just a few Philistine military commanders who were insecure about David's presence in a time of war. So what's the point of this chapter? Well, I think we have to combine chapter 27 and chapter 29 to get the point. And the point is this, that God's mercies don't just run out because His servants have a tendency to do foolish things. That God's mercies are there for us, even in our folly, even in our lack of faith, that His mercies are right there for us, even if we don't know it. 
And so where we messed up in life, but at the time of making those decisions, you, you were confident that you could handle what you were going through, that you had things figured out, you, you felt that you properly assessed the situation, that your, your evaluation of what was happening was right and what was going to happen was right in your mind. You, you thought that you were sure you knew where things were going, but it turned out all wrong. And all of the folly in your life, all of the foolishness in your life, all those foolish decisions you've made in your life, they're just no match for the God of David, who is the same God of you, who has these infinite ways to to rescue and deliver his children from the messes that they've created. And oftentimes the messes that we've created, we're responsible for them, right? Right? It's not like somebody forced us to do it. We, we make some foolish decisions sometimes. But God can even use the Philistines. He can use your enemies to rescue you. There are no bounds to God's mercies. And God's mercies can be thrilling, can't they? Right? The universe is the Lord. So, so why should we be so surprised at who or, or what God will use to deliver us? It shouldn't be that surprising. And, and when we discover God's merciful ways, how are we to respond? I think in wonderment. I think in joy, which leads us to worship, which leads us to praise. And we respond in worship and with praise. It's not all that complicated. It's really simple. It's really natural. And another thing I'd like us to look at in regards to God's mercy is the tenacity of God's mercy. How tenacious it is. How relentless. How stubborn it is. You look back at verse 7. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. Right here, can you imagine the relief David experienced hearing that from Achish? But but even though he had this relief, he couldn't tell Achish how relieved he was though, could he? Oh, man, Achish, thanks, man. I I was in such a pickle. You don't even know. All those spoils and things I I gave to you, they were actually from your people, not mine. (laughs) And and you know know why you never knew? I killed them. (laughs) And so, thank you. Thank you. You you don't know how much this means to me. And um, I, I, I I was just so stuck. I didn't know what to do. I, I was just, I, I didn't know if I should fight against my own people and, and lose my throne or, or go against you and then have you and Saul come up against me. Man, that was close. But after the fight, we're, everything's cool, right? I'll see you after the fight. We'll grab a falafel and some Hebrew. And, and so, so don't win though, because I still want to be king. And um, so David is quite an actor, right? Because, because although he's unquestionably relieved here, you look at his response in verse 8, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? So he gets a little heated here. He gets a little acting here. And what's up, man? What did I do? Don't, don't hold me back. Don't hold me back. I want to go. Right? And, and I want to fight those guys. And sometimes we're like that too, right? When we're discovered and you're like, oh, okay, I have to prove myself more. I really want to do that. And you really don't. But ah, yeah, yeah, let me take on that work project. Yeah, right. And, and when you guys are reading this, you're, you're thinking, what a dummy. Don't ruin it. You're already, you're in the clear. Just shut up. Get out of there. 
You, you got your answers, right? Eventually David does, but, but do you see as, as David gets up the following morning to head back to Ziklag, how, how tenacious and stubborn God's mercy is towards him? He's doing things to like reverse that, but God's mercy is still there. Like, David, you're, you're acting a fool, right? Like, stop that. But it's, his mercies are still there. Do you recall how David got in the mess in the first place? A few weeks ago, we talked about how it's understandable as to why he made the decisions that he did. He, he was tired. He was under a lot of stress. He was responsible for thousands of lives to provide them food and shelter and protection. Uh, but when he went to Philistia, David was placing his security in Philistia, not in God. And what it got him into was a, a bigger hole here where, where he had to cover up his tracks. He had to cover up his lies by stealing from people and then wiping them out, killing them. And when things came to a head for him to decide to fight against his own people or, or escape from Philistia to have both Achish and Saul after him. Now, so what to do? What is he to do? So David made an understandable decision. It was foolish, but it's understandable. It was, it was foolish, and it was made because his faith was waning. He was getting tired. He was getting stressed. He had nowhere to go. And if, if you don't think so... Uh, that his decisions were foolish, you just kind of look at where his decisions were leading him. I think they tell you that they were foolish. But you see how tenacious and stubborn God's mercy is. And just because he was in this mess in Philistia didn't mean he was outside the bounds of God's mercy. God delivered him. And God used Philistine commanders, the enemy, to do that. And the point is that David was in this mess that he created, yet God didn't let him sleep in his own bed. Right? That, that's not the type of God that we have. That's not who God is. And even when David chose foolishness by going to Philistia and made decisions that were not good, God did not remove his mercy from David. You look at chapter 27. It's full of foolish things. Right? It, it didn't place him out of God's mercy though. God's mercy still envelops us even when we do foolish things. And don't we just have a wonderful God? He does that. And we need to realize that our foolishness, that our folly, those things can't exhaust the mercy of God. God's mercy can't be exhausted. And isn't that good news? And some of you may need to hear this this morning. The mercy of God pursues His servants even in their foolishness. Even in their folly. Even when their faith is weak. And some of you may be questioning decisions you have made or you are at a place where your faith is waning. And you just need to know that His mercies are greater than your foolishness. They are greater than your waning faith. Now let's define the difference between God's mercy and God's grace. God's grace is Him giving to us what we don't deserve. God's mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. Our foolishness, our faithlessness, they can't exhaust God's mercy. God is determined not to give us what we do deserve. Mercy. And maybe some of us need to camp out in, in God's mercy for a while. And let His tenacious mercy envelop you and stop running from it because you can't. 
Right? It, it, it's relentless. It will pursue you into Philistia, right in the middle of your mess. It will go into that. And there's something interesting at the end of the chapter. Do you notice when David got up? This was interesting to me, at least. Verse 11. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. And remember we were talking about comparing David and Saul, so let's compare Saul. And when he got up and left, chapter 28, verse 25, they rose and went away that night. See, both David and Saul were in distress. They were in the middle of their trial. But if you contrast David and Saul, David got up and left in the morning. In the light. And that's the mercy of God as told to us by David in Psalms chapter 30, verse 5. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. This was morning for David. It was morning when God's quiet, tenacious, resourceful, creative mercy continued to pursue David in Philistia. And for some of you, well, I guess for all of us, it's morning. It's morning. Right? Where you are right now, you, you can respond to God's mercy in praise and in worship and reflecting upon His subdued mercy towards you and discover it in ways that you never saw before. And when you recognize those mercies, they'll just be so exhilarating and beautiful and tingly. And I'd like you guys to turn with me in your Bibles. There are, these, there are pew Bibles in front of you. It's the ESV version, so that we can read it together. And it's Jude chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. And for those of you using the Pew Bible, that's page 1027. And please turn to that so we can read it together. And we'll be reading from those Pew Bibles in front of you. Verse 24. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless, for the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercies. They are new every morning. And great is your faithfulness. Lord, we pray for our own waning faith. We pray, Lord, for the foolish decisions we've made in our folly. And, and we ask, God, that we would be reminded of your mercies. We ask, Lord, that you would direct us. We know that even in, in our messes, that you go directly into Philistia and your ways are so creative and infinite to deliver us from the things that we've created the message we've created. And, and we ask, God, that we would just be able to recognize that, that we would be able to camp at your feet of mercy. Lord, thank you for your subdued ways of doing things and how much more they mean to us when, when they just happen, when we discover them. And we pray, Lord, that we would know them more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.